I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallax Views listeners, as most of you know, each and every edition of Parallax Views is made possible by patreon.com slash parallaxviews supporters. On that page, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews, you can support me financially and help keep this show going with a monthly donation of $1, $5, $10, $15, or $100 And at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere Project. That's M-E-E-R, Mere Project. They are doing some very interesting work in regards to global warming and combating the consequences of it. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at the... $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And if you were in one of those tiers and didn't hear your name mentioned, please contact me on Patreon or by email at parallaxviewspod at protonmail.com and I will rectify that immediately. Sometimes I do not get the proper updates from Patreon about my new financial supporters and donors. So anyone that's having that issue, just drop me a line and we will rectify the problem as quickly as possible. Hey there, Paralyzed listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking to Dr. Anel Shiline. Research Fellow for the Middle East at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And our subject is the crisis in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. support for what Saudi Arabia has done in Yemen. We're going to be discussing that as well as the ceasefire that has, for the time being, halted fighting between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia. We're going to delve deep into this conflict, and with that being said, let's get right to it with Dr. Anel Shiline of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft.
Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been wanting to have on for some time, and we're finally making it happen. Uh, Dr. Anel Sheline of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? Good, uh, good. And I wanted to have you on because you've been uh, dealing with the crisis that we've been seeing in Ukraine. Uh, seven years now, I believe the anniversary just passed. Um, maybe you yeah, can tell my no, listeners. Not, not Ukraine. Oh, I. Yemen. Yemen. This, the, you're not the first person to say that. Um, and I myself have drawn the parallel between the two. Um, but but right. Just just so we're clear. Uh, we're, we're talking about Yemen. That, that That's going to be an embarrassing blooper for this episode. But. Uh, in any case, uh, could you tell my listeners uh, about your areas of research interest? I guess uh, you're mainly focused on the Middle East and, and North Africa. How did you become interested in uh, researching these areas? I mean, my sort of early um, adolescence and then you know going to college was very dominated by kind of the post 9/11 focus on the Middle East um, in terms of kind of observing what the Bush administration was doing right from the beginning. Um, I, I found it really alarming, sort of the, especially the amount of Islamophobia that seemed to emerge uh, immediately after 9-11. Um, and so I um, studied studied it in college. It wasn't, you know, the Middle East wasn't my exclusive focus, but then after college, I moved to Egypt and worked as a journalist for a few years and then did have the opportunity to spend several months in Yemen, both studying Arabic, what used to be one of the best places to, to study Arabic, um, and doing some freelance work as a journalist. And then that was back in 2010, so quite a long time ago, um, and then came back and started a PhD program um, in political science focused on the Middle East and uh, wasn't able to to do field work in Yemen because of the the sort of the war had um, started by the time I was ready to do field work. Um, and you know that that sort of came out of the Arab Spring. essentially, the the Houthis took over control of the capital Sanaa in fall of 2014. And then almost exactly seven years ago, we saw the Saudis lead a coalition of Arab states initiating this sort of the internationalization of what had been a civil war. Um, and now that situation remains very much that, that the Saudis continue to bombard and blockade Yemen, as does the UAE and the US continues to support this. The latest development is this sort of tentative ceasefire um, right around Ramadan, too. Exactly. So we we had seen the most recent developments have been that we saw a very high profile uh, attack from the Houthis into Saudi Arabia that hit an Aramco facility um, near Jeddah, and that the Houthi, the Houthis had previously hit various energy and water infrastructure facilities in Saudi Arabia, but this was different because it was it was Jeddah. It's the second largest city in Saudi Arabia. Um, it 
threatened to disrupt the Formula One race that was scheduled to take place. And these sorts of big international events have been part of what Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been relying on to try to shift this perception of Saudi Arabia with big, big concerts and this race and various other um, sort of international events to try to show that Saudi Arabia is no longer the sort of misogynistic, repressive state. I mean, it, it is, let's be clear, it is still very, very much that, but he's trying to shift that image. Um, and so I think that was crucial for sort of shifting his calculus here, that the Houthis demonstrated once again that they could hit these targets within Saudi Arabia. And uh, But then after that, the Houthis also declared a unilateral three-day ceasefire, which also sort of threw off the Saudi narrative because they have been putting themselves forward as the ones that are interested in peace and painting the Houthis as, as the aggressors and the spoilers. And so then the Saudis responded with their own ceasefire offer. Um, and it was kind of building on those two ceasefires that then allowed the new UN Special Envoy for Yemen, Hans Grunberg, to uh, to successfully kind of get this two month truce to get both sides to agree to to what hopefully inshallah will be a two month truce um, that that began with the first day of Ramadan. So I want to get into all of that, but but first going over the the history of all this uh, briefly, you know I feel like people don't necessarily know about Yemen or the Houthis or, or why the Saudis led this intervention. So I, I guess where I want to start is who are the Houthis and uh, what, what made people not understand about them if they're only getting the sort of Saudi side of things? Yes, and, and the Saudi side, unfortunately, is essentially what the, the U.S. has also been spouting. Um, so to, to the question of who are the Houthis, they are a, a initially a, a family, but the broader Houthi movement or Ansar Allah is their official name, which means partisans of God. Um, they emerged out of the region of Saada in northern Yemen, which borders Saudi Arabia. And their initial complaint had to do with the fact that, that Saudi Arabia was trying to export Wahhabism into their territory. And they are Zaidi Shia, which is a branch of, of Shia Islam, which is different than what is practiced in Iran. Um, they're, they're sort of their own branch of Shia Islam. And so their, their initial frustration had to do with these efforts at Saudi proselytization. Then they ended up fighting a series of six wars against the central government in Yemen, led by Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, and when the Arab Spring, when Arab Spring protests broke out in 2011, they lasted a lot longer than in places like Egypt or Tunisia, where within a matter of days, we saw the, the president's stepping down. It took it took uh, close to a year to get Saleh to eventually agree to step down. Um, a, a political transition process was put in place, including something called the National Dialogue Conference that tried to bring in different groups from around Yemen to sort of reimagine what the, fu the political future of Yemen was going to look like. Um, so at that time, the Houthis were just one of several groups who were frustrated with the status quo, wanted to push for something new. Another important group um, in the mix are the, the Southern secessionists, 
So South Yemen used to be separate from North Yemen. It was the only um, communist Arab state. And it essentially, once the USSR fell apart, they, they unified with Northern Yemen in order to survive, essentially. Um, that happened in 1990. But then the Southerners decided they didn't actually, that they weren't really benefiting from this union and tried to secede. Um, in 1994, and the, the North forced them <laughs> to remain part of Yemen, but there have been a lot of lingering resentments over that. And so Southern secessionist movements were another group of Yemenis who were just quite frustrated with the rule of Saleh and were, were quite concerned about what might come out of the, the National Dialogue Conference. And so when that ended, we saw both the Houthis and the Southern secessionists rejecting the outcome, which would have been sort of a federal system for Yemen, which would have allowed for greater autonomy for the various regions. Um, and unfortunately, it was at that point that the Houthis took up arms to oppose this outcome and eventually took control of the capital and ousted um, the interim president, Abd Rabu Mansour Hadi, who then has been in exile in Saudi Arabia since 2015. So I, I wanna note that because I think some people may get confused and, and they'll think, oh, the, the Houthis are just representative of all of Yemen. And that's not the case either. Although I assume uh, there are a lot of people in Yemen that probably support the Houthis simply just because, I mean, I mean Saudi Arabia is acting as an invading force. So who else are you going to turn to, uh, to, you know, stave off this invading force? Am I on the right track there? A hundred percent. So I think in many ways, I've often drawn the parallel to the Taliban in Afghanistan. You know, the Taliban have done and continue to do awful things, especially misogynistic things, human rights violations. The Houthis are, are similar kind of religious ideologues, often very misogynistic. However, they have both of these groups have a legitimacy of, of defending the homeland. And so over time, as sort of the foreign aggression continues to grind on and, and the average person, especially in Afghanistan, the rural population is dealing with the, the death and destruction meted out by the United States in Afghanistan or the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen, individuals who wouldn't have otherwise supported the Taliban or the Houthis feel that that is really their only option and that they would prefer to live under the, the strict rule of the Taliban or the Houthis than to, than to die as a result of the ongoing wars. So from the sounds of it, the, the parallel I would draw is, um, you know, I, I cover uh, Palestinian issues a lot. And to me, it reminds me of, you know, I've talked to Gazans and, and uh, Palestinians that would say, you know, I don't really like uh, a group like Hamas, but there's there's no one else uh, fighting for us. Uh, so I may support totally. them in some ways, but not in other ways. Is is that sort of a, another parallel we could draw? Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I think just the the in in all three cases, sort of the the military strength and the wealth and sort of the outsized violence that the aggressor state, whether it's the U.S. or Saudi Arabia or Israel. Are, are imposing on this, this, you know, civilian population that is generally impoverished and, you know, just has, has really no way of defending themselves. 
I do think there are a, a lot of parallels there. And so again, it makes sense that people who, who if it were really just up to them and sort of what do we want for the future of, of who rules over us, we aren't necessarily gonna choose Hamas or like we wouldn't choose the Houthis, but first we have to deal with, <laughs> with the bombs falling on our heads. And once that's been addressed, then we can talk about the sort of the future makeup of, of government and who we actually want in charge. So what leads to the intervention by Saudi Arabia? Like what 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 drove them uh, to this intervention? Because obviously, uh, my understanding is they thought this would be uh, a very short lived thing. They'd go in and it would be over shortly. It's gone on for seven years, though. So how did that come about? Yes. So at the time, Mohammed bin Salman was not yet crown prince. He was just defense minister. And he did think, you know, he, he portrayed the war as, as something that would be over very quickly and um, ostensibly saw it as a way to try to secure his position as crown prince, which eventually he did become crown prince, despite the fact that the war was and remains a debacle. Um, another motivating factor was the, the support of Iran for the Houthis and the concern from the Saudis that this was going to maybe develop into another sort of Lebanese Hezbollah situation that they felt very concerned about this Iran-sponsored group on their southern border. Would you ironic, explain what you mean by that? What, uh, in case I have people that don't know what you mean by another Lebanese Hezbollah situation. Oh, just that, you know, Iran supports various groups around the region, whether it's um, militias in Iraq that were ironically, you know, quite quite effective in combating ISIS and often sort of worked alongside the, the U.S. and the, the international coalition fighting against the Islamic State. Also, Hezbollah receives significant amounts of support from Iran um, in their efforts to sort of control Lebanon. Um, and so the Saudis were worried that the Houthis were going to become something similar. And what's what's sort of ironic about that is that in 2015, Iran wasn't providing that much support to the Houthis, but subsequently they've provided a lot more because it's a great way for them, you know, for, for a fairly small investment, a couple tens of thousands of dollars, smuggle in some weapons, and the Houthis have demonstrated that they can do a lot with with just a little bit of, of resources, whereas it's forcing Saudi Arabia to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on these US-made missiles and aircraft and defense systems. And you know, all it takes again is, is kind of like this one Houthi missile to get through the defenses. Um, in, and just one note on that, in general, the narrative has sort of been from the US side, that the U.S. has to support the Saudis to defend themselves from the Houthis. But in fact, the U.S. does support the Saudis quite extensively. And 90 percent of transborder projectiles launched by the Houthis are deflected successfully. But again, all it takes is that one drone or missile to get through. And then the image that the Saudis have been trying to project is cracked. This is quite similar to what we saw in Abu Dhabi when there was a, a drone attack in mid-January that unfortunately did kill three people um, at outside uh, the capital of Abu Dhabi. But you know, then other attacks were successfully deflected. But again, all it takes is that one to get through 
and suddenly this image that the UAE has been very successful in, in creating of themselves as this bastion of stability and security and a hub for investment and tourism, et cetera, all of that is suddenly at risk. Um, so it's, from my perspective, you know, I'm, I'm mainly concerned with the, with the humanitarian devastation in Yemen. But even if my main concern were the future economic prospects of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, I would say, well, it would be in their interest to stop this, to stop fighting, to, to cease their aggression on the Houthis, and therefore they would no longer be a target. And then they'd focus on the economic development that they're, you know, clearly spent a lot of time and effort pursuing. So I, I want to drill down into this issue of um, Iran and the Houthis, because I, I find it interesting. I, I, I drew a parallel recently, and I, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but um, you know, I, I've seen people push back on, say, uh, someone like John Mersheimer um, for saying things about Ukraine that could be construed as saying, uh, oh, the, the Ukrainians uh, are just a proxy uh, for, for NATO, right? Um, and people push back on that. But I've seen some of those same people say, well, the Houthis are just a, a proxy for Iran. And it, it seems like the, the question of um, autonomy uh, isn't always applied equally. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, again, the Houthis predated any support from Iran. Again, they 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 arose because of their their frustration with um, Wahhabi proselytization and just their frustration with the central government in Yemen, which everybody acknowledges was deeply, deeply corrupt. I mean, Ali Abdullah Saleh, I believe his his net worth was $60 billion in Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, so, you know, they, the, the Houthis had their own set of grievances um, and their own set of interests. And so this is also part of why... Not to interrupt you, but in other words, I guess what I'm getting at is it seems really unfair to say, oh, uh, the Houthis are, are just solely the project uh, product of the Iranians. It's not, that, that's an oversimplification. Absolutely. Well, and this is part of why when people sort of had a notion that if the U.S. were to rejoin the JCPOA and perhaps could develop a better working relationship with Iran, that that could help solve what was happening in Yemen. I mean, I think that's a worthy goal for itself to, to in terms of nuclear nonproliferation and the, the threat of an arms race in the broader Middle East. But that wouldn't necessarily have changed what the Houthis were trying to do. I mean, Iran could uh, could cut off weapon supplies to them, for example. But again, they're just they aren't supplying all that much to the Houthis anyway. I mean, there is a, an international arms embargo, and and this is this is part of the the blockade that the Saudis have long imposed on Yemen, which which is actually uh, supported by the UN. So in 2015. UN Security Council Resolution 2216 established sort of the, the Saudi-led coalition and the Houthis as kind of the two main parties to the conflict and, and established also a mechanism to inspect ships coming in to Yemen. That's called, the abbreviation is UNVIM, it's located in Djibouti. But they also certified the Saudis to sort of impose additional levels of restrictions. So even after the UN verification mechanism or UNVIM says, yeah, this ship's good to go, no weapons here, like this is 
this is just food, this is just fuel. The Saudis consistently have then blocked that ship further and just haven't let it unload or they divert it to Saudi Arabia. And this is part of why we've seen such a crisis in Yemen is because there's no fuel getting in, there's limited food getting in, the economy cannot function. Um, you know, fuel prices are incredibly high, food prices are high. And so, you know, much much of why the UN has, has long declared Yemen the world's worst humanitarian crisis does have to do with the fact that that food, what food is available is too expensive for people to, to afford because it has to be brought in on ships that are transported on this very, or on, you know, once it hits, even even the area that is not controlled by the Houthis, a lot of imports have been brought into Aden in the south, and then it has to make its way overland to the capital city of Sana'a or the rest of northern Yemen. Um, and and so by that point, you know, it's it's gone through several different stages, and everyone has imposed their their taxes on it or just the cost of getting the food there. It's just, you know, these, the impoverished population simply can no longer afford it. And furthermore, humanitarian groups also are having to deal with the fact that there is no fuel. What is available is very expensive. And they, they simply cannot get the, the aid to where it needs to go. And then that is compounded by the fact that because it has been going on for so long, there is a lot of donor fatigue. And so there was recently a big UN conference to try to raise uh, somewhere between three and four billion dollars for Yemen, and I think they only raised about one point three billion. And even that—that that was only what was pledged. And you know, often in the past, there have been countries that make pledges that don't actually send the money. Um, so, just in in general, it's 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 not only what the Saudis are doing; it's also the fact that U.S. continues to support them, continues to sell the Saudis weapons. And and the UN framework itself is is problematic in that it justifies what Saudi Arabia is doing. So, can do you have any of the numbers offhand for? I, I guess to give an idea of the atrocities that have unfolded, uh, what are the numbers of civilians that have been impacted by this? So the UN estimated that by the end of 2021, 377,000 Yemeni civilians would have died by that point. We often you'll see then the number of 400,000 since the, it's only getting worse, um, especially in the context of the, the Ukraine crisis and the rising cost of wheat, um, such that already expensive food and inaccessible aid is now that much more expensive. Um, so those are people killed both, those are civilians killed by, by kinetic violence, but mostly people are dying as a result of, of structural violence, of starvation, of lack of medical care, of lack of clean water, of disease. There was a massive cholera outbreak because the Saudis consistently have targeted water treatment facilities. And so I mean, Yemen is already a very water scarce country. Um, and so what little water was available um, that was no longer being treated. So um, there, but on, so in addition to kind of those factors, we also do consistently see the Saudis continuing to hit civilian targets with their airstrikes, um, which is a war crime. I mean, you are 
you're not allowed to target <laughs> civilians, which is part of what you know what we're hearing in terms of you know Putin's actions in Ukraine right now, um, whether they are clearly intentionally targeting civilians, similar to what they did in Grozny and in Syria. Um, so so those numbers, I believe it's about 10,000 um, civilians that have been injured or maimed by airstrikes and 9,000 that have been killed directly by the airstrikes. Um, and, and then, that, then even more people are suffering because of the, the blockades. Yes. And so we're now looking at anywhere from sort of 16 to 20 million people that are on the edge of, of starvation. So either dealing with, with extreme food insecurity or famine conditions, essentially, that they will die um, unless food reaches them. Um, so it's and one other thing to keep in mind is that the the Houthis control territory where 80% of Yemenis live. So although when you when you look at a map of Yemen, the Houthi controlled areas don't don't look that big. Um, it's sort of clustered in the former North Yemen. But it's partly because the, the former South Yemen, much of that is is very sparsely inhabited. Um, and so areas that geographically look big, a lot of that is desert, um, and there just aren't that many people out there. And so where where the sort of high density parts of the population are, those are mostly um, areas controlled by Houthis. So I guess the question that a lot of my listeners and, and maybe people that are new to this topic are going to have is, why is the US supporting all of this? Why, why do we keep giving uh, weapons to uh, the Saudis to continue this conflict? Exactly. Um, so initially in 2015, the you know former Obama administration officials have come out and said that a big part of it was because of the Iran nuclear deal. And they knew that the Saudis um, were going to be opposed to that deal. And they hoped that if the US supported the Saudi-led war, which again was supposed to be over in a matter of weeks, that perhaps the Saudis wouldn't criticize as vociferously. Um, the Saudis did criticize vociferously, um, and clearly the war is still happening. So that was that was a an extreme miscalculation on the part of the Obama administration. Then, obviously, under Trump, we saw a very close relationship with the Saudis. Um, uh, in a, in a recent report I put out, one of the graphics shows just the the massive amounts of weapons sales that the Obama administration made to the Saudis, such that. People may remember when when Mohammed bin Salman came to D.C. and Trump held up that like big check showing just the the you know all the jobs that Saudi that sales to the Saudis were going to generate. A lot of that was already in the pipeline. That was those were deals that had been negotiated and agreed to under the Obama administration. Um, Trump did sell additional weapons, um, but but I do think it's just interesting to to look at the numbers and realize how much of this came came from the Obama years. Then when Biden came into power, he went in his first foreign policy speech on February 4th, he said this war must end. We're going to end US support for offensive military action, including relevant arms sales. And that offensive defensive distinction 
have been doing a lot of work for them because they did end up selling a billion dollars in, in, in additional weapons to the Saudis last year um, and justifying it saying that these are for, for defensive operations. But if that were true, we would have expected to see Saudi airstrikes go down from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. And we haven't seen that. They, they stayed kind of relatively the same. And then in recent months, they went way up. The, the Saudi airstrikes are now at levels that are, are comparable to what we'd seen back in, in 2018, for example. Um, and so this, this just would seem to indicate that very little has actually changed in terms of the US support for what Saudi Arabia is doing. So we, we continue to sell them weapons. Um, Two thirds of the Saudi Air Force are US built and so could not fly. Without and we're claiming regular... this is all to help them out defensively, quote unquote. Right, this is all to help them defensively. Um, but but that these planes could not fly without U.S. military contractors providing maintenance and spare parts. I mean, you know, these these kinds of aircraft require a lot of, of very expensive maintenance. And and um, essentially, if if Biden were to even pause some of these contracts and say like. We are really concerned, you know, we really mean it this time. We really want you guys to stop bombing Yemen. And so we're, you know, we're not canceling the contract. We're just going to pause them. We would ground two thirds of the Saudi Air Force. Um, and the, the other third is, is UK made. And, you know, the UK is, is also quite complicit in this, but just not quite to the same extent as the US. Um, it, so, it, not to interrupt you, it just it kind of blows my mind that this is uh, this is called defensive when it's you know Saudi Arabia is uh, intervening in another country, but somehow these bombings are defensive. Yeah, it's that's bizarre to me. Exactly, and and again, there's this narrative when you hear whether it's Anthony Blinken or Ned Price or other State Department officials talking about what's happening in Yemen, they always condemn what the Houthis are doing, which. Sure, condemn what the Houthis are doing. They deserve condemnation, but they don't then equally condemn what the Saudis are doing, or they they express concern about it. But but they, in general, you know, in in terms of your question of well, why why is this U.S. policy? And I, I think Americans are really accustomed to the notion that we have to hold our noses and go along with what the Saudis want because we're so dependent on Saudi oil. But at this point, we're not. We only import 7% of, of foreign oil from Saudi Arabia. And, you know, people say, well, the Saudis are, are a very important producer and they can have a big impact on the price. And this is true. But, it, you know, we don't bend over backwards for Russia just because Russia can have a big Im impact on the price of oil like they can. And clearly the imposition of sanctions on Russia has had a big impact on the price of oil. But just this notion that that we have to keep bending over backwards because the Saudis are such a big oil producer isn't is not consistent with our policy towards other countries and and I think reiterates just the fact that that we should be trying to get off of fossil fuels that much more quickly. Um, so I think to to what actually explains it, a, a big part of it is this concern that if the Saudis no longer see the U.S. as a reliable partner, that they will turn to China or they will turn to Russia and the U.S. will lose leverage in the region. 
Um, and in particular, I mean, leverage is sort of questionable, like what, if we have this leverage, what, why are we using it? Um, but I think the real, the real explanatory factor here are, are the weapon sales. Saudi Arabia is our biggest customer in terms of, of buying US-made weapons. And that I think a lot of US policymakers, especially folks like Brett McGurk on the National Security Council, have made the calculation that weapons production is one of the only areas where the US remains competitive. You know, we in other words, it may be one of the only areas where we can compete with China. Exactly. That we we cannot really hope to compete with them economically, just in terms of labor costs, et cetera. And so really the only thing we can we can hope to do is to maintain our edge on on the weapons front, which means to continue to sell weapons to some of the worst governments in the world, um, which doesn't benefit the average American. I mean, it benefits shareholders of companies like Raytheon um, and Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics and, and the others. Um, but it, it's not, in fact, uh, something that that, you know, would be like, for example, uh, in terms of dollar for dollar investments, if if the U.S. government invests in kind of a new weapons facility, um, as opposed to kind of a new healthcare facility or a new education facility or new green energy facilities, the the jobs produced are are far greater in all of these other industries than they are in the weapons industry. And so, you know, people will say like, well, you know, we have to maintain these. Are you know, we have to keep building these weapons because. You know, people in the Rust Belt are already suffering and, you know, we can't shut down that that Lockheed Martin facility. And the point is, you would actually benefit that community a lot more if you had invested in building a hospital or some, you know, some which which we know in our country, like rural hospitals are shutting all over the place. Like we need better access to health care for so many Americans. And yet there's still this specious argument that, you know, while we really can't shut down that weapons factory because that's going to hurt jobs when it's like no if we're really interested in jobs there are a lot of other industries that are much better jobs creators so another thing that we have to touch upon here is uh you recently co-wrote uh something for the quincy institute uh biden should punish saudi arabia for backing uh russia this was from march 22nd um i guess saudi arabia uh, didn't want to publicly condemn the invasion um, and reiterate its commitment to the OPEC plus agreements um, after after this invasion of Ukraine happened by Russia. Um, I, I guess what are we getting out of uh, the the special relationship uh, between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, and and what are the ways in which Saudi Arabia hasn't really acted as um, a, a great ally, because I, I think there's even reports that uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, has allegedly declined to speak um, with President Biden um, earlier in, I think, March, right? Yes. So so that piece was um, something I co-authored with Khaled al-Jabri, who's a, a Saudi dissident. He's the son of Saad al-Jabri, who's in exile in Canada, um, who, who used to be quite close to the Saudi regime um, when Mohammed bin Nayef was crown prince, but sort of fell out of favor when MBS took over. Um, and Khaled and I wrote that for foreign policy. And the argument we were making 
um, essentially was that from the perspective of, of the leadership in Saudi Arabia or the leadership in the UAE, they no longer trust the US as a security partner. And they see someone like Putin as a better ally for them. In part, this has to do with the fact that they know that neither Putin nor uh, Premier Xi in China would make any noise about human rights violations or would have any qualms about selling them weapons uh, due to, you know, or, or, you know, would pause weapon sales due to their own human rights violations. Um, they also observed how, As how um, Putin helped keep President Assad in power in Syria that essentially that he was willing to come in and commit horrific civilian atrocities and to support Assad, who himself, his government also committed horrific civilian atrocities. And in contrast, they, they had already observed the fact that in the context of the Arab Spring, the U.S. did not step in to prevent the fall of longtime partners like Hosni Mubarak in Egypt that the U.S. was not going to fire upon civilians who were protesting their governments. And so from the Saudis' perspective, in, in the longer run, they, they see someone like a Putin or a Xi as, as just a better partner for them. And so even, you know, even if the U.S. continues to maintain this kind of weapons advantage with, you know, the latest, most expensive, deadliest, uh, F-35 and whatever comes after, um, that that doesn't really matter as much as having a partner that they feel they can count on to come in and, and perhaps fire on their own citizens if they do find themselves dealing with that, the level of, of sort of popular unrest that Assad did. So there, there were maybe one or two more things I wanted to touch upon. And, and I think we've sort of been getting at it in talking about uh, the U.S., China, and Russia in relation to this, are, are we seeing this sort of return, as some people have put it, of great power competition? And what does this mean, not just for Yemen, but I, I guess the region as a whole, the, the Middle East? So, you know, it has been quite interesting to see how great power competition, that framework, has, has displaced terrorism. I mean, in many ways, I'm glad that the U.S. is no longer so focused on terrorism because I think in many that of, of the, the horrific effects that that had around the world. But it is kind of odd just knowing that it dominated so, so much of our strategic thinking and our resources for so long. And now it's suddenly like just doesn't, you know, we finally acknowledge that like terrorism wasn't actually ever as big of a threat as it was portrayed to be. But that doesn't that necessarily threat. mean, not to interrupt you, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be completely out of the Middle East either. No, well, and, and certainly we, we are continue to maintain a presence in the Middle East, but now the justification is less about terrorism and it's more about, you know, we have to prevent a vacuum from opening up. You know, if we, if we pull out of the Middle East, China's gonna come in and take over, Russia's gonna come in and take over. And in general, we we have not seen, I mean, China in particular has demonstrated that they are much more interested in economic partnerships with these countries. Partly, I mean, who would want to follow 
the U.S.'s example in the Middle East in terms of our very expensive and futile wars. China is, is you know, really not interested in doing that. And, and for now, the U.S. essentially continues to subsidize security in the region, much of which that security allows these massive oil exports to China. I mean, in, in many ways, it might make more sense to actually have China take on some of the security burden of overseeing some of this international trade because they're they're dependent on it. Um, so so very much the the sort of new cash cow in Washington is this notion of great power competition. And it is reflected in reality. You know, we're, we're no longer the U.S. is no longer sort of the unipolar superpower actor in the world as it was at the end of the Cold War. Um, and uh, I think the the concern is that we're going to, con I, I fear that we will continue to see U.S. policymakers trying to reassert that dominance or to act as if we still have that dominance, when in fact, we are, as Americans, going to have to get more accustomed to compromising and to international outcomes that we may not be as thrilled about. I mean, I think it is very important that obviously the U.S. needs to remain engaged in the rest of the world. But the way that we've gone about doing it, which is primarily through through military interventions around the world and also maintaining this massive network of 800 bases all around the world has has not made us safer, has not made the rest of the world safer, is hugely expensive um, and is undermining arguably democracy here at home and, and undermining people's sort of confidence in the future of of American society. Again, like we we look at something like the the incoming budget, you know, Biden requesting the the largest budget, <laughs> you know, last year's budget was already so massive and Congress gave even more money than Biden asked for. And this year he's asking for more on top of that. And it's and you look at like what else is being funded you know, how do we have the money to continue to throw so much at the Department of Defense and yet we are struggling in so many other ways to pay for just sort of basic necessities that Americans need? So real real quick, just coming back to that, that issue of China, I, I think in some ways what you're saying is that China probably doesn't want to play the game that the U.S. has played in the past of, I mean, this is a crude way of putting it, but of being, you know, uh, world police. Yes. Yeah, I, I think they've they've probably just observed that it, it seems fairly expensive um, and not terribly beneficial if if one's primary aim is is to, is economic growth and development. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has largely pursued a strategy or a, sort of a, an overarching grand strategy of military hegemony around the world, being the most powerful military actor by far. And and we still are that, you know, we spend more on our military than I think the next 10 countries combined. Um, but again, just the realities of of shifts, you know, as China continues to to gain additional economic power, it's just not clear how the U.S. is going to be able to maintain this without further sort of carving out the 
for lack of a better word, the American dream, sort of, you know, what what Americans can rely on here at home in terms of a functioning, you know, functioning infrastructure and healthcare and schools, which, you know, I, I say that knowing that that many people do not have that in this country. Um, and yet we continue to see decisions made by the White House and, and primarily by Congress about funding military expenditures and so-called national security when our when our actual day-to-day -day lived security of, of Americans at home is is continually being undermined. So the other thing there, uh, you know, so we moved away from the war on terror to this idea of it's the return of great power competition. Uh, and that's why we have to sort of stay uh, in the Middle East and we, we have to do these things. Um, does this bode, I mean, for me, what, what's scary about that is it, it sort of treats a lot of people in the Middle East as, as sort of pawns in a competition. They're sort of reduced to that. Uh, does this have the potential of creating a blowback, I guess, in the future? Because I, I don't think it's creating um, goodwill for the U.S. I, I'm sure a lot of uh, Yemenis are going to remember this, uh, this moment uh, with U.S. support for Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. And I, again, part of what's so sort of ironic about the case of Yemen is that before this current iteration of the conflict started, the U.S. was already conducting a massive drone war in Yemen um, against groups like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, which was considered the most dangerous branch of Al-Qaeda. Um, we had seen attacks like, if people remember, the underwear bomber um, that um, I believe that happened maybe like 2009 or 2010. He was not originally Yemeni, but he went to Yemen to study Arabic and then was sort of radicalized from there and, you know, tried to blow up a plane. Um, and one thing, again, the irony there is that one of the most effective actors against AQAP were the Houthis because they, you know, the Houthis are Shia and AQAP are radical Sunnis. Um, and another sort of irony is that in Yemen, we have seen American-made weapons that we have sold to the Saudis or Emiratis then end up in the hands of Al-Qaeda. And just also knowing that um, a lot of the militias that the UAE is supporting in Yemen to fight the Houthis tend to be these radical Sunni Salafi militias. Um, so the original purpose of U.S. In involvement in Yemen had to do with counterterrorism, excuse me, and yet now <laughs> all of our efforts are actually perhaps opening up more space for AQAP. And, and as you said, the, the people of Yemen are very aware of the fact that the U.S. is, is a, a key sponsor of this war that they're experiencing. It's called the Saudi-American War. And it's interesting, too, because coming back to the, the whole issue of Iran, I mean, if the Saudis were worried about, oh, the, the Iranians are going to help the, the, the Houthis, uh, you know, they, they've probably done that more by intervening in, in uh, Yemen in the first place. It seems like that wasn't always there anyways. A hundred percent. Exactly. That, you know, they've, they've incentivized additional Iranian involvement that you know, if the Saudis had just not not intervened in the first place, 
you know, I mean, Iran is dealing with its own set of issues. Obviously, sanctions remain against Iran. They the they have a lot on their plate uh, to deal with. But but from their perspective, if if the Saudis are going to continue uh, bombing Yemen, it's a great opportunity uh, for them to to kind of bleed the Saudis there. So there there were just two more things I wanted to cover uh, briefly here. First. Uh, what can the U.S. do uh, at this moment with regards to the ceasefire? What what should uh, people be thinking about policy-wise? Well, so one very important thing that individual Americans can do is to call your member of Congress and your senators and tell them to support the Yemen War Powers Resolution. This uh, Yemen War Powers Resolution had passed in 2019 with bipartisan support, um, but Trump vetoed it. And this would have ended all US support for the, the Saudi intervention in Yemen. Um, we have uh, Representative Jayapal and De- Representative DeFazio committed to reintroducing it. And then recently Rokana said he would also be an original co-sponsor and Bernie Sanders said he'd introduce it um, in the Senate. I, I was um, going to say, I think even you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think even like and I'm, I'm not necessarily a, a big fan of him because I'm not uh, sort of a Republican or a libertarian. But I think even like Rand Paul uh, was joining forces with Bernie Sanders on opposing the arms deals uh, with Saudi Arabia. So there is a, a potential yeah. bipartisan uh, sort of effort here. Yes, Rand Paul has has been making uh, has been doing a lot of work to try to push back against um, weapon sales. He, he tried to block the recent weapon sale to Saudi Arabia back in December. Unfortunately, that failed, but it got a lot more senators to, to support it than we might have expected. Um, he also recently tried to block um, military aid to Egypt because of Egypt's horrific human rights abuses. Um, you know, and this this is part of something that my organization, the Quincy Institute, we we call ourselves transpartisan. You know, we we reach out to folks on the right and and folks on the left, um, in particular the libertarians on the right who tend to be more skeptical of sort of the the bloat of the military budget, who want to see less spending on on any kind of government, but <laughs> including the military. Um, and so as you know, it's, it's sort of a tricky position for an organization to take, but at least on foreign policy, if you go, it, it's not bipartisan, it's not sort of about like coming to the middle. It's more about if you go to the to the kind of the libertarian right and and sort of the, the progressive left, a lot of those folks agree on on certain on these kinds of aspects of foreign policy. So anyway, just to get back to the importance of re- reintroducing a Yemen War Powers Resolution, because based, you know, uh, I suspect that part of why we saw the Saudis being willing to agree to this latest ceasefire was that recent attack on Jeddah, but also knowing that this Yemen War Powers Resolution could be coming through could perhaps be implemented um and then they would lose you know it'd be embarrassing for them to sort of have to be to to publicly acknowledge the fact that they can't really fly their own planes or that you know their their air force will not function without u.s assistance so better from their perspective to, to sort of 
impose the ceasefire and, and, and withdraw with some measure of dignity before a Yemen war powers resolution. I, I was going to say, it sounds like in some ways there's probably people within the, you know, what people like Kelly Vlahos, one of your colleagues calls the DC blob that are thinking, well, you know, this, this may be horrible, this whole Yemen crisis, but we have to find a way to let bin Salman and Saudi Arabia uh, leave with dignity. You know, uh, they may they may not agree with what what's been done, but th- their their calculus may be that, uh, well, we have to find a way for him to get out of this gracefully. Is that going on at all or? That has been a justification for a long time. I, I think at this point that is bogus because they've lost the war. And so there's really no way for them to, to claim victory here. And, and, it, and as, as a result of kind of it's, U.S. It's policy makers, Well, right. And sort of this notion that, that they just need a little more support, which I think is part of what we've seen, why we saw that spike in, in coalition airstrikes in the past few months, followed a visit to the region by Brett McGurk and Jake Sullivan, as well as the special envoy for Yemen, Tim Lenderking, and our understanding, based on, on conversations with folks close to the White House, was that there was this notion that the White House was going to really support the Saudis in Yemen, give them the chance to to sort of eke out some kind of minor victory and then withdraw so that they could preserve their dignity, because this is what the Saudis have said they need in order to end the war. Um, and yet it just it just continued and the civilian casualties have just been rising. Um, and and so I, you know, perhaps now this ceasefire, they would argue, reflects the success of that. And, you know, if if it does, that's great as long as it holds. But again, I think the threat of a possible Yemen war powers resolution is going to be much more effective in trying to make clear to the Saudis that if they violate the ceasefire, or at the end of the ceasefire, they just start start firing again. Yeah, I think that's important to note R- real quick. I, I think a lot of people may misinterpret ceasefire and think, oh, that means it's a peace. Uh, no, it's it's a two-month ceasefire. They're, they're different things. They could go back to um, bombing after those two months, as I understand it. Totally. And, and often, you know, you see parties to a conflict using excuse me, an agreed upon ceasefire to consolidate their positions. I mean, that that is probably happening right now. Um, and so the concern being that unless there are sufficient incentives to maintain this ceasefire beyond the, the two month period or however long it manages to hold, um, that they will just just go back to firing at each other. I mean, this has happened previously several times in Yemen where a ceasefire was was negotiated but then ended um, and you know fighting resumed more fiercely than ever so so again just i i it it really does make a big difference um having worked with folks who who are on the hill they listen when constituents call their offices you know an online petition not so much but but calling your member of Congress or calling your senators, those all get recorded. And so it, it can make a huge difference um, in terms of, you know, any kind of legislation. But I think in particular, if, if people care about what's happening in Yemen and, and the civilian devastation there, 
And relatedly, you know, I, I think people are obviously experiencing a lot of of anguish over what's happening in Ukraine, partly because it's it's so visible. Like, you know, the media has just been covering it 24-7 and and people feel horrible about what's happening to Ukrainians. But and and there's been sort of this frustration, like the US isn't doing enough to support Ukraine. And then there are these questions of like, well, Russia could, you know, we could, we could start World War III over this if we're not careful. And so personally, I think it's wise that U.S. policymakers are, are being somewhat circumspect here. There's been a little bit of restraint on Biden's end with regards to Ukraine. Yeah. For which I am very grateful. Uh, I think that's, I think that's important. You know, dealing with Russia is very different than dealing with the sort of adversaries that, you know, whether it's the Taliban in Afghanistan or, you know, uh, actors that have neither Air Force nor, nor nukes. But again, if, if you care about civilian casualties, the war in Yemen is actually a, a conflict where you could have a major difference if, if you call your member of Congress and tell them to support this war powers resolution. We could end U.S. support for this war and, and the Saudis would no longer be able to, to drop their bombs. And I think it's important to note, and I think you've pointed this out elsewhere. Uh, you know, you've been on on uh, you know various media outlets. Uh, I think from NPR to the Turkish network uh, TRT. And one thing that I think gets left out of uh, this conversation is that the the Houthis and the Saudis are not the only people that are entangled in all of this. Um, or, or even the U.S. I mean, there, there are other uh, people in Yemen that aren't even associated with the Houthis uh, that I don't think their voices have always been heard. A hundred percent, you know, and and this does get back to the fact that the the U.N. framework for the conflict just has the the Saudis and the Houthis as the main belligerents. But and unfortunately, you know, that that reflects the fact that these are the belligerents, but there are many other groups within Yemen who, some of whom have taken up weapons because they know it's the only way to have anyone pay attention or, you know, to to have their interests be met. Um, but then there are other, you know, youth or, or you know, civil society groups, women's groups. Yemen historically has had a very vibrant civil society. It, it's the only republic in the Arabian Peninsula. And back in the early 90s, actually had a relatively open press. And again, this, this was kind of where that legacy of, of this vibrant civil society came from was because there had been more political space for, for Yemenis to sort of engage and, and produce media and, and be involved. Um, and so there, there is this history there, although obviously in the current context, not not much of, of um, you know, it's difficult to have a vibrant civil society in a war zone, but that that remains that sort of history. And many Yemenis would really like to have a role in kind of deciding the future of their country. But as long as it remains a war zone, their voices are not going to be heard. They're they're not going to have a seat at the table. And so, you know, people say things like, well, if the Saudis got bombing, there would still be a civil war. And that is accurate, you know, but but that would at least move the war 
towards resolution. If we could return sovereignty of the war in Yemen to Yemenis, they would work it out. And furthermore, you wouldn't then see the same kinds of civilian devastation because these are not groups that have air forces that can bomb each other. Also, you know, if, if a Yemeni militia bombs the local electricity facility, they're also going to not have electricity. So <laughs> the calculus is just a little bit different when it's internal groups trying to, to figure out the future of their country than when it's an external aggressor who who faces, you know, no personal consequences for, for the result of the, the devastation they wreak. So I, I know I've kept you long here, but there was this issue I wanted to cover, and I, I'd sent you an article related to this. Uh, there's a lot of talk, especially by Biden, about how uh, we're now in the age of democracy versus autocracy. And then I'm starting to see other people, uh, including Robert D. Kaplan, uh, who wrote a Bloomberg opinion piece recently called Save Democracy, We Need a Few Good Dictators. And I guess Kaplan is arguing, well, you know, there, there's uh, there's some good enlightened autocrats out there that are willing to side with us, the, the good West. Uh, you know, uh, I think he mentions Morocco. And I, I was thinking about our relationship to Saudi Arabia in, in regards to this as well, this idea that, well, you know, yeah, they, they may be authoritarian, but uh, you know, they may be good for us uh, in regards to combating China or Russia. Um, and I, I mean, I'm kind of put off by that kind of thinking. You know, when someone says to me, well, Morocco is an enlightened autocracy, I think to myself, well, go, th- go tell that to Western Sahara. Um, but how are we to, to look at this, uh, th- this whole issue of autocracies versus democracy, and then these other people that are saying, well, we may have to side with some of these autocrats, to me, that may be missing uh, possible blowback that we'll face from doing that. I mean, in general, you know, I I found that Robert Kaplan piece to almost read like an April Fool's joke, like, you know, he characterizes the Saudis, like MBS's rule as, you know, providing additional freedoms to Saudi Arabia. And Saudis are experiencing a level of repression that that even even in kind of the the early 2000s when there were a lot of terrorist attacks and there was a big crackdown on from the security state within Saudi Arabia or even kind of after the Arab Spring Saudis have said there was a lot of repression and yet nothing nothing like what they've experienced under Mohammed bin Salman um so this notion and, and yet that, what we hear about a lot of times is well now the the Saudi women can drive cars <laughs> right Right, which, you know, that's great. They should have been able to drive all along, but so, you know, we're, we're starting from like pretty low bar here. Um, and also, you know, when I was last in Saudi Arabia in 2019 and was speaking with rural women, you know, they're like, okay, so we can drive, but they don't, we don't have the money, you know, we don't have access to, to a vehicle or, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have any impact on our lives. What what we need is, you know, more, more resources and jobs. Um, so in general, I think, I think his piece just reflects this overarching um, notion that the U.S. has to maintain our sort of American supremacy at all costs, and we should be willing to sacrifice our own principles 
and to to continue to partner. I mean, we already sacrifice our principles when we partner with these autocratic regimes, but but he's arguing for sort of doing so in service of, I guess, this broader pro-democracy agenda, which just is sort of paradoxical. It's very contradictory, um, and to me, I, I don't think we, I don't think he's thinking about the unforeseen consequences of that. You know, uh, uh, you know, if we don't hold to these ideals, that can be used against us because we're expressing one thing and then doing another. Um, you know, if people worry about whataboutism, uh, you know, that should be a concern. Totally. I mean, and, and we've seen this in the current context of, you know, Biden declaring Putin a war criminal, which he is. But at the same time, I mean, the U.S. isn't a party to the, you know, American presidents can't be tried in the International Criminal Court. Like none of the Austin, you know, alleged war crimes that have been committed, for example, during the war on terror or in previous U.S. military actions. Um, I didn't support the Iraq war. Right. Like, and, you know, I, I think there's been this sense um, people expressing a certain amount of frustration with critics like me or or my organization that have pointed out the fact that the U.S. has engaged in a lot of similar behaviors to what Putin is doing. Um, and they're, you know, they're kind of like, well, but how can you compare the U.S. and Putin? And it's like, okay, yeah, Putin is, is not trying to... <laughs> to rule a democracy like there there are very clear differences and we're not saying they're the same but again it's just some, it's about the moral consistency and it's also partly about how the US is viewed by by the rest of the world by countries who you know historically perhaps had looked to the US as perhaps a paragon of you know the thinking that we would actually live up to some of our ideals and having observed the extent to which we do not now are kind of like, and now you want us to like jump on board these Russia sanctions, which is going to hurt our economy. Even countries that historically we've been at odds with. I mean, uh, someone said to me recently, well, why does, why isn't Cuba speaking up uh, for Ukraine? And I, I'm like, well, we don't <laughs> trust the US. I mean, I think it's the right. same with Venezuela. Yeah. Right. Right. Is there anything uh, you want to say in closing and then I'll uh, let you go? I think, again, just to, to ask people, if you have a minute, call your representatives in Congress and tell them to support the Yemen War Powers Resolution. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. Hope you didn't mind the horrible blooper I had at the beginning there. <laughs> I said Ukraine when I was talking about Yemen. That was so embarrassing, but we got through it. So I left that in there. I thought it was a funny moment. Anyways, please be sure to keep up with the work Dr. Anel Shiline is doing. We, of course, here at Parallax Views are big fans of what the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is doing, trying to offer an alternative to the hawkish elements of the DC blob, so please support her work and the work of other scholars at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews 
One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Make a monthly donation of one, five, ten, fifteen, or a hundred dollars. Any amount will help. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. Parallax Views with the way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.